Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup to nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of On the Side with me, your host, Jackie London. I have a fantastic interview I can't wait to share with you today. My guest today is Anna Rosales. She is a registered dietitian and the Senior Director of Government Affairs and Nutrition at IFT, which is Institute of food technologists. I had a fantastic conversation with her and I I really think you're going to love it. She is working on so many interesting projects, primarily focused on the role of food science in shaping and helping to develop food and nutrition policy. She joins me from Cartagena, Colombia, where she's living now. And she just returned from the recent White House conference on food, nutrition, and hunger. And we talked a lot about what happened at the conference, what is the direction of food and nutrition policy for 2023 and beyond, where she sees the role of dietitians in shaping and helping to develop the communication and strategy around the policies that are made to make food more nutritious, more accessible, and more delicious, more easy to eat and enjoy among family, friends, wherever you are. So this was truly a fantastic and such an interesting conversation. I really can't wait for you to hear what we talk so about my favorite topics, my my myth-busting wheelhouse. We get into the myth of processed food, which really blew my mind. We talk about the new FDA healthy label that was proposed at this conference last week. We also talk about the phrase food is medicine, which I feel like I know we've talked about before. We definitely talked about it on this podcast before, but Anna has a really unique perspective and a really specific idea for how we might actually put the idea of food as medicine into a specific time and place and and put some actual meaning and definition behind it. So I think you're going to love it. I think you're really going to have, at the very least, it's going to get your wheels turning and make you think a little bit more about food and cooking and the role of food technology in our current food system. So I cannot wait to hear what you think. I loved this episode. I love chatting with Anna. She is fantastic. And I'm so glad to have met her. We have never actually met in person. We've simply met virtually for the first time this week. So thrilled to hear what you think. As always, please leave a five-star rating and a review. If you like this podcast, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, if you're having fun, if you have a question, if you want to learn more, please reach out to me on Instagram at JacquelineLondonRD. And without further ado, let's get to Anna. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. All right. So today's question comes to me, to us, to your listening ears from a listener who found me on Instagram. So thank you, first of all, for sharing your questions, for following along on Instagram at Jacqueline London RD. 
The question, first of all, I will just share this. This is a trigger warning. This is your trigger warning now for binge eating, anything on the topic of binge eating. Okay. The question is, I'm struggling with emotional binge eating at night. I know I'm not hungry, but I feel the physical cravings when I'm relaxing after a long day at work. I was wondering if you had any tips. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for your time. Thank you for reaching out. Okay, so here's the thing. It's it's hard for me to answer this without more, much more context. I, I will say that first, but I will do my best to give you a kind of high level answer and then we can kind of take it from there. But I think that some of these concepts will help put things into a little bit of perspective. So first of all, I just want to normalize this because it is completely normal. So many of us feel this way, particularly at different points in time, in life, depending on the job, depending on our other personal circumstances. So you are most definitely not alone in this. And that's really the main reason why I wanted to make sure that I answered this on the podcast. Because if you're listening here and there are others like you who feel the same way, then I know for sure that that you are not alone. But I have seen this so often. Often and, and so many times in practice. And, and so I don't want to minimize this. I simply want to normalize it because it really is something that happens to all of us at one point in time or another. Now, here's the thing. My first couple questions would be to think about this from a purely physiological standpoint, right? Because if you're not eating enough throughout the day, then it can be really, really easy to feel like you're overdoing it late at night and or after your normal meal times, right? And a huge part of that is because then we wind up conflating what's emotional with what's actually physical. And I would want to, before tackling any of the emotional realities, right? I'd want to figure out how we could make your day feel a little bit more satisfying for you so that the physical is kind of like ruled out from the equation, right? So step one would be to check in on your meals and snacks throughout the day and make sure that you're one, eating consistently. So every three to four hours, I would make sure that you're having a snack or a meal. I would make sure that you are staying consistently hydrated along with that. So let's say I would aim for that eight cups of water a day. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of content just talk about whether or not that's an outdated rule. It may be, but I don't care because honestly, you're going to be well hydrated at eight cups a day. (laughs) And that makes me feel great because then you're going to rule out both thirst and hunger from getting involved in the mix when you feel like you're kind of going off the rails later on at night. So more consistent meals more often, and then to make them feel more satisfying, make sure that you're having both a source of fiber and protein at those meals and, and make sure that you've got enough fat in there. Because recently I'm seeing like more and more people, this seems to be a little bit trendy, like we're kind of missing one of those nutrients and that just makes your meal feel less satisfying. So a couple of great examples would be like, you know, your morning breakfast sandwich with the full egg, like the, the whole yolks are involved in there. You've got some whole grain breakfast bread and you've got some veggies, maybe you'll add a little avocado to that. And then you're making sure you've got a piece of fruit for a snack later on. And then for lunchtime, maybe you're running out of the office to grab one of these like sweet green setup situations um, and loading those up with a ton of different veggies, some protein, and then make sure that you're adding a grain or a starchy veg, like 
sweet potato into that mix. And then later on in the afternoon, you're having an apple and peanut butter, banana and peanut butter. Maybe it's a piece of cheese, but I would make sure that all of those meals and snacks during the day, during your actual workday are feeling satisfying, but not that don't make you feel so stuffed that you feel like you just want to go to sleep after. Cause I think that sometimes can psychologically make us feel already like we overdid it if we feel way too full during the day. So I don't, I don't want that to feel like it's the case either. The other thing, because this listener mentioned reading my book and I talk a lot about this in my book is the, the sort of satiety scale of trying to figure out where you are on that scale, because I would want you to be at around like a four kind of a three to four pre-meal and a five to six to seven after you eat so that you're staying within that kind of range before, during, after your meals and snacks throughout the day. And the last thing that I would say is that along with the consistency, the hydration and the meal composition in general, I would just check in on whether or not you're getting outside during the day, whether or not you're getting enough sleep at night. Those are two really important factors that I I'm sure you well know can play a role in messing with your hormones, making you feel, I mean, your hunger and satiety hormones, making you feel a little bit hungrier one day versus another day. So check in on all of those things. So that would be like the kind of physical nature of this. The second thing that I feel like I I have seen really be effective for people once that kind of physical component is ruled out is to think about diverting the activity. So I don't know exactly when you're feeling this is happening, the feelings of binging or wanting to binge like after work hours. I don't know if that's immediately after work. I don't know if it's after dinner. So I would say that if you can find something that gets you into a pattern of simply putting it off, right? Like I'll get to that. I'll keep going on this bag of chips a little bit later, but for right now, I'm going to go on this 20 minute walk. I think that the pattern of diversion can be like the hardest thing to do on one hand, and it can also be the most effective on the other hand, right? Is that once you just say to yourself, like, I'm going to push this back a little bit, I can do this later. Like, I just don't need to do it right now. I can do it later. There's something extremely powerful in that. And when I say that it can be the hardest to do, I mean, it can be the hardest to do for the first time, but the second time it gets a little bit easier and it will continue getting easier for you as you continue to practice. And I would say I would give this like one solid week of practicing it. And of course, if you feel like, you know, like you still want to continue to binge over the course of a week again, this is sometimes a normal part of things. Like this may just be the phase that you're in right now. And I would say that if it continues longer than a few more weeks, I would want you to check in and see if maybe there is a referral that you could put into place or if if you have a physician that could refer you to a therapist because that might be helpful in some of the more cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. But this is a very big cognitive behavioral therapy technique is the diversion, is the pushback of doing something that you want to stop doing by simply giving yourself a little bit of extra time to say, I don't have to do this right now. I could do something else, but the something else is critical. Like actually doing that something else rather than just like still sitting in your kitchen because you don't want to be in the same environment. You want to change up your environment a little bit and make sure that you get out of your space, get out of your head and feel like you have something that is also relaxing to you that gives you those same senses of what you're getting from the food itself. So this was a little bit of a long one today, but I think it's really worth, you know, diving into and and sharing as much detail as I can, but try the diversion first and let me know how you're feeling. Let me know how it goes after one week, 
shoot me an Instagram DM during the week. If you need more help, I'm, I'm here and happy to provide whatever I can. But first, remember to take care of yourself physically, right? Like you want to make sure that you're ruling out those physiological reasons why you might be really hungry. Make sure that you're getting enough sleep, you're hydrating, and that you're moving a little bit more. And then remember to practice this diversion technique after work or whenever you're experiencing these feelings of wanting to binge. All right. Okay. So without more talking from yours truly. I will get to Anna Rosales, our interview today. But as always, please DM me, find me at Jacqueline London RD on Instagram. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I love hearing from all of you. And I love this forum and this ability to be able to have this dialogue with each and every one of you. So please reach out and thank you. I'm so happy you're here and you're joining us from Cartagena. First of all, let me just start here, Anna. Anna? Anna? Yeah. Anna. Is that, okay. I, Anna. I, okay. I go by both. Good to know. Oh. <laughs> my I parents do. call me Anna, but I do live in Cartagena, so I right. respond to Anna on a daily basis, and I don't... It's fine. Either way. I, after I said Cartagena, I, then I was like, wait, is it Anna? I mean, that's like... It, 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 it made me you pause. <laughs> it made me pause. <laughs> Tell us, you just took a sip of coffee. What's happening with that coffee? Was that the best coffee you've ever had in your life? Sounds <laughs> pretty good. Um, I love coffee. Like I, I love coffee. I would say that my um, my coffee today is from Mesa de los Santos. I like to try the different coffees from around Colombia. Each kind of region, well, we have many different coffee growing regions, yeah. but every region has a little bit of a different flavor and offering. So one of my favorite things is one to visit coffee fincas and learn about their growing practices and, and their coffees. I love to try different coffees from around Colombia. We have a, a shop in town. It features all different fincas from around Colombia and their and their coffees. So I love that. I I mean, I have two kids. I don't know if I drank coffee before. I can't remember. But now it's become such a staple in my life. <laughs> I think it started as a need, probably. Like, it, and then it, it, wasn't then it evolved into like an absolute enjoyment, but an enjoyment and a need to kind of mesh together. But I love coffee. <laughs> I mean, I love coffee. I really, really love coffee so much, but I really love how you said that thing. Because that's right. I mean, first of all, I totally relate to this. I, I feel... Like this is, this is true kindred spirits. I would love to go to each of the different, I would be trying every different bean. I would be like, yes, I'll take another sip. Just hand it over. Just send it my way. I'm happy to be anybody's coffee tasting guinea right. <laughs> A thousand percent. We're just going to just, we're just going to throw you straight in there. Now, what's happening with the bean from a food science standpoint? What Uh-oh. is happening? <laughs> What do you think came first? Your interest in food science or your interest in coffee? <laughs> oh, definitely my interest in food science. My interest in food science like goes back to like childhood. I have always been obsessed with food. Like That's obsessed. amazing. I loved it. I love I mean, I was cooking and baking on my own when I was like my mom says it was like second grade. I have older siblings and they I don't know if I first loved cooking or if they convinced me to love cooking because I, I vividly remember them telling me that their friends have little sisters that cook. And I thought their friends' little sisters were like super cool. And so I was like, well, I can cook. And yeah. I, rem- I remember them timing me on making their after school snacks and, <laughs> and, yeah. and just like encouraging Wait, me. Wait, how long? How? 
Wait, how long? I mean, What's the best? Like they were like, I mean, my my siblings are like 10, 8, and 6 years older than me, right? So like they were totally using psychology to get me to help make their snacks. But somewhere wrapped up into that, I fell in love with making food, sharing food, showing love through giving food, right? Like I, yes. I cared about them. And that was that's such like a way that we show that we care about people when we we share our recipes and what we make for them. So I've I've been obsessed from childhood, you know, and I think when I grew up too. In the 90s, like that was the time of like Iron Chef marathons. Totally. I could those for hours, like <sighs> a Friday night with Kitchen Stadium. Like that was amazing and fascinating. <laughs> wow. We could call each other on our clear jelly phones and watch at the same time. I mean, because we that's could. what we would have been doing. And also, what <laughs> were we talking about for so long. Like it seemed necessary to be on the phone for prolonged periods. And now I sometimes purposefully hide my phone under a cushion. And I'm like, just don't, I don't want to know where it is. <laughs> just, just don't want to know. Don't tell me. Wait, this is amazing. So what, what was in the after school snack? Oh, there was everything. Like, I okay. mean, sometimes it would be grilled cheese sandwich. Sometimes they would ask me to make them pasta. I remember oh, oh, even I, full meal. Oh, it, I mean, they were, they were like, boys. like right. yeah, like they were like <laughs> growing teenage boys. So yeah, there were milkshakes. There were, I mean, it, it was basically a fourth meal. Um, this is brilliant. This is, this is one of the smartest things I've ever heard. They I mean, it now, was pretty smart of them. And that, I think, I mean, when I look back on it, that really did start my interests, yeah. though, right? That and I would say, combined with the uh, the way that we gathered as a family, my my yes. family my family's kitchen had this bar that like overlooked the stove where my mom and dad would be cooking dinner, Aww. and there were four stools, and all four of us kids would you know we'd get home and we'd be told like go sit at a bar stool and do your homework when mom and dad got home from work. So while they were cooking, we were all kind of like lined up there working on our homework and you know like grabbing at what they're making, like standing back if something's splashing. Like we were involved in it, even though we weren't yes. actively the ones making it all the time. Um, that was like the family homework dinner center in our home where everyone gathered. And I think that also coupled with my, my older brothers tricking me into cooking for them after school Uh, snacks for years. (laughs) That was the beginning of my love for food. (laughs) The beginning of your, this was the true beginning of your career. I mean, this is like the beginning of your personal and professional life all in one bar bar stool. I was going to say bar stool, but that's not, it's not really the right word. All in one kitchen kitchen. Oh my God. It's that's true fantastic. though. It's amazing how we're influenced as yeah. children, right? It's those little things that don't seem like a big deal yes. that really spark our interest and get us kind of down our path for whatever we choose later on. That's so well said. This is my biggest question for you on this because I really, I mean, my mom is going to be listening to this. She's going to be upset with me for saying this, but <laughs> but I have to air the dirty laundry. I mean, I only came to cooking after college. <laughs> Like I really, my mom did not cook and she had like a cut, like one or two dishes that she would sometimes cook. But the reason why I think about that so much now is because I don't think it's the type of thing having this experience. I don't think it's the type of thing that you ever grow out of, you ever can't learn or like, like, like it doesn't matter that I came to it later. It means 
it means that I was just having different experiences with food at that point in time. But the thing that I think is so interesting, right? But the thing that I think is so interesting about it is that you, and maybe this is an assumption, but tell me, you tell me. It's when you talk about it, it sounds so like, oh, like home, but also like you knew it was a science from day one. <laughs> like you came out and at one years old, you were like, I'm a scientist. I'm going to start cooking. <laughs> like like the science components of it. I don't think I understood food science as a part of anything until actually graduate school. Like I really did not, yeah. did not know. I have to give my mom full credit here because she was originally a home ec teacher. So she had, (laughs) that was mom. That's amazing. That's amazing. That was the background that she had, um, you know, years before she had me. She still to this day is upset that I don't know how to sew. So that, so all of the home ec skills did not come through, but the cooking, the cooking, the the cooking and the food part (laughs) definitely came through. (laughs) Oh, Wow. No, I really don't. My gra- I do have a memory. My grandma tried to teach me that once. I-, I think I probably hurt myself. Like, I just don't. That is a true meditation of sorts. I'm pretty sure. Like knitting, sewing, the OG of meditation. Yeah, yeah I just, <laughs> no. I don't know. I can't. I've no. tried. I've watched YouTube videos. My husband can, which God bless him. <laughs> He gets the buttons. When the buttons fall off, it goes to him. When the buttons fall off, I'm like, oh no, where's the stapler? (gasps) I'm normally looking for the dry cleaner or tailor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Help. No, it's so bad. I'm totally with you. I wish I knew how to do that. I really do. It would be such a skill. I'm so impressed with him for knowing that. I mean, you can't do everything, you know, Jacqueline. I I feel like we all have to have what we can do and contribute. So it's true. It's true. That's so true. I know. I mean, if you're going to do the cooking around here, honestly, so what is like a typical weeknight meal for you now? Like, what are you, like, are you making dinner tonight? For example. What is tonight? Today's Friday. I'm not going to lie. Friday nights, a lot of times we go out to eat. We have a little Italian restaurant that um, is next to a park that my children like to play in. So it's like a tradition of our family to go to the same Italian restaurant, like every Friday night. So tonight, Friday night, I don't cook. Yes. Because we go out <laughs> and they know oh, I've tried to cook on Friday nights. Like if I've been inspired and I want to try something and I, if I and start they're... to make it and they come home, they'll be like, that's cute, mom. It's uh mom, Friday what night. Time we are we the right. <laughs> yes. Mom, what time do we have that cleaned up, put away so that we can leave? Like exactly. when, when does the oven go off? <laughs> like they're thinking about Friday night, probably from Wednesday. Um, oh, so they know. So, cute. Uh, so Friday nights, I don't cook, but during okay. the week, it varies. It it absolutely varies. We have, I I feel like we almost have a dinner formula um, yes. where it's the flavors change, but okay. the kind of components yeah. are relatively the same. Like there's always some type of carbohydrate or starch. Yeah. Many times it's rice. My husband's Asian American. So rice is like a staple that he grew up with and that we have very often on our table. We always have, have a vegetable and generally more than one vegetable. A lot of times we'll do sheet pan cooking. So it'll be like roasted veggies. Other times it'll be like sauteed veggies, steamed veggies. Like it's always a vegetable and then a protein. And those just vary. Sometimes I'll roast a chicken. Other times it'll be garbanzo beans. Other times we'll put tofu in the air fryer and have crispy tofu with um, sauteed vegetables and like sriracha. And that's dinner. But it's almost always like during yes. the weeknight, like it's pretty consistent, like carbohydrate starch with veggies and a protein of some sort. 
we often eat in bowls. Oh I will tell God. you that. I, so. As you were, it's so funny you say that. As you were describing this, I was like, this would be so good. I like, I, I'm imagining it in like a very deep bowl with like, every, like, like it just sounds so cozy and delicious. We often eat in bowls and we often will make like dressings um, to oh. go with things. So we'll make like a tzatziki sauce like on a Monday and we'll use it throughout the week or we'll have like hummus or we'll make some pickled cabbage. So we'll have like little side dressing things to go with whatever these things are. And everybody just kind of makes whichever one, you know, the pieces that they like. So they kind of customize a little bit. We're all eating the same meal, but if we have, you know, roasted vegetables and it's like cauliflower, kale, and broccoli, like my one kid might be like, I only want kale tonight. Okay, fine. I don't care. The other's like, I'm all about the cauliflower. And then I'm like eating it all. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. 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 No, I also feel like I, I'm a person who really feels strongly that like before they go in the bowl, they have to be in there separate. Like do not mix them. I like them because I like to know what I have. It's like a mise en place. Like I, like I have to see them. I like to know. Then once they're in the bowl, I mean, come on. It's like, I mean, then we're just layering or mixing or di- like it's a whole free for all once we get to the bowl. But uh-huh. when we're setting up the toppings bar, I like it to be like a high, high separation yeah. level, you know, I, what keeps yeah. things contained. Let's just My children would agree with you, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> they would agree with that. you. Yeah. I feel great. A hundred percent. Okay. I feel great about that. Okay. So tell us, so since you got to Cardenia, how long ago was that? Coming up on four years. Amazing. I mean, that's amazing. So is there something that you discovered about food, about a new cooking style, something that was new to you from four years ago to now that has like evolved about your conception of food, cooking, meals, anything? You know, wherever we live, we kind of, you you always adapt to the culture right. and the foods that are available. Like before right. we moved to Cartagena, we lived outside of New York City in a town in New Jersey that had a large Asian population. Mm. And before comfort foods were you know, soup dumplings and like Korean barbecue and kimchi and moving here. We didn't, we don't have those things available. Like they just, they just don't exist here. So those comfort foods have changed to the foods that are culturally relevant here. Now I eat arepas with breakfast. I've never in my life ate arepas before living in Cartagena, but that's now just part of my, my routine. And normally we'll have like an arepa I'm I'm slightly strange. I really like to have vegetables at breakfast. So I'll I'll have like an arepa, some vegetables, it's and a like an egg. Breakfast. And that's yes. That's my breakfast. I've never had pan de bono before I moved here. Well, I, actually I take that back. There was a Colombian restaurant in New Jersey that we used to eat pan de bono at. But wow. <laughs> when we moved here, pan de bono, it's a it's a cheese bread. It's a Colombian cheese bread. It is. And it is delicious it is heavenly i feel like crying just thinking about it it's so good (laughs) it's yes it's made of cassava cheese eggs and sometimes they'll put guava or guayaba like um in it so it's like sweet and a little salty and with like a really hot cup of coffee like that's a delicious breakfast too so there's certain things that just are part of the cultural diet where we live that we've adapted and we love and now when i travel back to the states and visit family I take my arepa flour with me to make arepas <laughs> for my family there. <laughs> That's so good. Like when we travel both ways, our suitcase has 
the opposite things that are available, right? Like I bring my arepa flour right. and my coffees with me when I go back to the States. And when I'm coming back from the States, I'm bringing like Trader Joe's spices and spice blends and things that are harder for me to find here oh. back with me. <laughs> I can't but tell there's like half it... a suitcase for food items. <laughs> yes. I would do the exact same thing. So when you first got there, was it an adjustment period or you feel like we know how to adapt. I feel like it takes I feel like it takes less time than people probably think it does. I mean, I think there's always an adjustment yeah. period, but we were excited for the adventure. So right. we didn't feel like we were missing out on right. anything really. We were just excited for a new experience and a new adventure. So it's, it was so long ago. Now I have a hard time remembering what I the know. adjustment period was <laughs> like. I will say that I don't remember what I brought back from trips, but I felt like I brought more stuff back in the beginning. Like there were things that we, my kids would remember and miss and they'd be like, Hey, can you bring back, I don't know, like a box of cereal that doesn't, the same one didn't exist here or something. And now as time has gone by, maybe they've forgotten. Maybe they don't miss it. I don't know. Now it's really just spice blends. (laughs) I love that so much. I love that so much. Okay. So not to get us wildly ahead of ourselves, but we can always, we can always come back to this. So the last time that you were in the States, tell us. Last week. Last week. (laughs) Tell us about last week. Tell us about last week, Anna. I'm very, we have many channels to uncover. We have many roads. (laughs) So last week I was in DC. I was honored to get to join the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health. Yeah, I don't know. I've said it out loud correctly and incorrectly, and I've mixed the order of things multiple times. So yes. Mm -hmm. I have to say it twice to get it right. (laughs) It was amazing. There was a palpable energy in the room which was really exciting. It was so great to see people from across the food system, government, private organizations, NGOs, and they're all there for the same goal. They want to eliminate hunger and reduce diet-related diseases by 2030. Wow. So that was cool that there was that clarity and all of these people from across this broad section coming together. It's a bold goal, right? Like it's That's a big goal and I love it. Um, It's going to take some actions big and small to really make an impact. Yeah. I think it was just the start, right? It was the the spark, so to speak, to get everyone together and talking and committing. And now we have to do the hard work to bring about the change Mm. that's needed. And a lot of organizations, I don't know if you saw through the CDC Foundation, many organizations, NGOs, private, public, et cetera, have made commitments along with the White House Conference, which has been great. IFT made some commitments as well. And I think that that's, that's great to see that kind of momentum coming out of it, that people are are, are committed to helping bring forward the, the different pillars of the White House conference. But it'll need to continue beyond just those commitments. We'll have to see updates to policy legislation to, to really see the impact. You know, in the short term, I know yeah. that you'd asked me before, like, okay, what's the short term? What was What am I most excited about? I was excited yeah. that it got some things out, right? In the short yeah. term, the White House Conference helped move some things along, like yes. the FDA healthy yes. proposed rule that was released the morning of the conference. I don't think it was a coincidence. <laughs> um, and that was great. That was exactly. a while in the making, and yeah. it really helped get it out from where it was at. And now it's we have the proposed rule to, to react to. You know, for the White House Conference, 
the next steps are going to be what's exciting. And so we're trying to define what does that mean for food science? Yes. At IFT, we're going to be hosting a panel on the role of food science in the White House conference later in October. It's October 24th. And it'll have a food scientist, Taylor Wallace, a policy expert, Sylvia Rowe, and the USDA Director of Nutrition and Equity, Sarah Blake, all on a panel discussing, okay, what does this mean for food science? Where are the opportunities, the challenges? What do we need to do? And and how can IFT or the Institute of Food Technologists where I I work, how can we help bring it forward? So we're excited to continue to unpack it. (laughs) Wow. Let's go back. Tell us about IFT. Let's get the background (laughs) on IFT and how you wound up at IFT. Give us a little a little uh, sense of you can give us a little sense of that. You can tell that however you like. We can go, we can start with your birthday when you were born. <laughs> you can start cold anywhere, but winter tell day. Us exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the best of um, times. It was just the best of times. <laughs> we just bring it back to books. Well, I let me start by just saying I love my work. I joined the Institute of Food Technologists in February this year. That's so amazing. it's relatively new to the organization. And I joined because I'm passionate about their mission and vision. It really resonates with me, and I want to help bring it forward. IFT's vision, it's for a world where science and innovation are connected, universally accepted as essential for improving food for everyone. Amazing. Pretty simple. The mission, that's what gets me most excited. It's to connect the global food system communities to promote and advance the science of food and its application. Like, I'm here for that. Like, let's connect the global food system communities. Let's break down the silos. Let's lead with the science and let's get things done. So that is what brought me to IFT. It's the mission and vision. Like, I am so jazzed to be a part of that and to help bring that forward. For me, food science, it's that connecting thread for the food system. Like, we all say food brings us together and it does, but food science is what really brings the food system together. We have agriculture, we have the nutrition of what we actually eat at the end of the day, but food science is what gets us from one to the other. Yes. That's why I'm at IFT. If I back up and tell you like history, like early in my career, <laughs> I I worked in clinical nutrition. Yeah. I really enjoyed seeing the impact of my work improve the quality of life of my patients. Yeah. That was just incredibly rewarding. At the same time, I came to a point where I wanted to shift and I wanted to help change how we're doing things to prevent illness and diet-related diseases versus helping improve quality of life to treat them. Both are essential. It was just where my passion was kind of like taking a step towards. So that brought me to work for food companies. And that was the first shift to working more within food science directly. And I was an RD at a consumer product goods company or food company for for two different ones, you know, the past 12 years, basically, before I joined IFT. And I worked in communications. I supported product development, marketing, education, research, labeling, and more. It was great. Like, I loved that work too, Jacqueline. Like, it was so fun to work cross-functionally and to help create strategies to improve the nutrition of the product portfolio, to research ingredients and processes, Working with the food science to help develop a new product, like that's super cool. It's the cool. coolest thing. It's right. so fun to see that like idea yeah. come through to prototypes and beyond. Like that is so right. fun. But as a dietitian, I will say when you're working at a food company, a lot of what you're doing is behind the scenes. And yeah. people probably don't ever really think about it or see it, right. but it's it's that bringing influence and awareness of nutrition to all of the work. So yeah. meaning that might mean that you're making the nudges and influence so that 
whenever there's photography, that they're having mm. proper portion sizes, or when they're oh. developing recipes that they're healthful and they're not just yeah. considering the food product that's being produced and sold, but how we're suggesting for people to use them in their diets. Right. So people don't really see that work, but that's what I was doing behind the scenes, so to speak. So overall, I loved that role because a dietitian can really help connect the nutrition science to the organization. So Oh, I wish we had met earlier. I feel sad about that. When I hear you say that, I'm like, oh no, the years we've lost, but we we didn't get that. Because I really, that's so perfectly well said. And I feel like it's so, it is so misunderstood. It's almost like the behind the scenes, behind the scenes, because the, the word that you use that really sticks with me is nudge, which I feel like it's sometimes a word that gets a bad rap. And yet I also feel like it's my life's work. I would agree with you. I like see my elbow moving of like the, it it gets a bad rap, but it's the most important role. And at least from the, from a, for a CPG food company, like it's the most important thing you could really do. It's those small changes. They add up. They add up, you know, to say that you're going to come in and be the nutrition police and say, you're only going to make this. It's, it's not going to necessarily work. So it has to meet both the organizational strategy as well as the consumer demand and beyond, but you can make those nudges. My favorite part was really to interface with food science and marketing, helping translate science for non-science professionals. Like there's a lot of miscommunication there. Oh, there's so much. (laughs) There There is so much. Give us a little story. I'll take any little story. (laughs) You're hilarious. (laughs) Well, I mean... Not just food scientists, but science scientists in general. I feel yeah. like when we're talking to each other, we are tracking, we understand, we mm-hmm. we get the language. But whenever you use that same language with a non-science professional, you have to break it down. And right. so that was just all the time, whether that's within the organization, outside of an organization, like it's just needed to help break that down. At IFT, I get to do that a little bit too, right? I'm yeah. advocating for the role of food science within mm-hmm. policies, research funding, And I will say in my experience, the science of food professionals, they're brilliant. More often than not, they're incredibly humble. Um, They're not out there shouting out about their work. Um, So part of my role is to really share out their brilliance and help others see the value and understand the role of food science has to improve, honestly, food and nutrition security. That's where my focus is at IFT is to show the role of food science related to food and nutrition security. So. I like to say that very specifically because often when we think of food and nutrition security, I think as dietitians, we we don't even think about food science. Um, yeah, no, I, I was just going to ask you to say more because I because it's so true. Like I, when I think of food science, I think of the NYU in the old Steinhardt building that was the kitchen where we would like take the, that was where the two food science, you know what I mean? Like that's where uh-huh. my brain goes. But I also feel like, like I know that it's, much more than that. And then I think, Anna, help. (laughs) Tell us. Tell us. For food and nutrition security, I mean, there's solutions across the food system for it. So it's not just one piece of a food system that's going to alone be able to, to make the strides that we need to. But within food science, there's the aspects of nutrition Food science brings us the the actual foods, the way that we process it can increase bioavailability. Mm. Think of, I mean, even enrichment and fortification, your yes. vitamin D and okay. A and I milk, it come like, back to me. Okay. your folic acid in your <laughs> yes. grains. Like these are some right. of the greatest like public health successes we've right. had. All of that's food science. 
When we're talking about food waste, there's aspects of food science there, whether it's you know, reducing food waste and processing or coming up with ways to valorize the waste streams and take things mm-hmm. that maybe would have been a byproduct and now now it's a new product. Think of whey protein. Yes. <laughs> like that's, right. that's food science. Brilliant. So there's so many aspects to that. And one of the things I get to do at IFT is we have a group called our Food and Nutrition Security Steering Committee. It's a group, I'm going to get the number wrong. I think we have around 10 um, scientists from around the world that have come together to identify some cross-cutting challenges around food and nutrition security that have food science solutions. So one by one, what we're doing is we're taking those challenges and we're going to be hosting roundtables with experts on that topic with the intent to author white papers on the topic to share out the the solutions that either exist, that need more research, that need scaling, to bring awareness to the food science solutions that are out there um, and how it relates to the overall challenge of food and nutrition security. Are you so are you able to share one or the two first of one's those? food yeah. waste? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, the yeah. first okay, one good. we ta- first one we have planned, it's on food waste. We are doing a couple of webinars, well, one webinar next week. I think it's October 12th as part of the FAO. They have a science innovation forum that is in two weeks. It's either in Rome or virtual. Encourage people to check that out. But our food waste group was accepted for a virtual side session. So they will be hosting a session for an hour long, highlighting case studies around food science solutions and food waste. So that's kind of the first touch point. Then we're hosting the roundtable with the experts in November. And knock on wood, I hope to have a paper by by January. <laughs> wow, that's a turnaround. That's we, a we turnaround. Say. Amazing. I said it out loud and it's being recorded. No, it's so true. I have to like... No, it's true. It's the perfect way. It's the perfect way to get it done. What are some of the other challenges outside of food waste that are, are sort of on this docket? Docket, docket's not really the right yeah. word, but... Yeah, we have processing technologies, um, Mm -hmm. processing technologies that can either improve nutrition or are more sustainable, utilizing less water, energy, while Mm -hmm. still improving the the nutrient retention. We have biofortification or biofortified traditional and underutilized crops. There's new and alternative proteins. That's like a big one these days, new and alternative proteins, whether you're talking about plant-based meats or cell-cultured meats, like that's a big topic. We've got quite a few, and a lot of them are around that kind of intersection of nutrition, as Mm -hmm. well as, I would call it equity, but encompassing the affordability, availability, accessibility of the foods, right? Because the food science is what can scale things. It can make it available for the masses. It can help streamline the production of it and reduce the waste so that it's available at an affordable price point. So. We've got a lot That's amazing. and it's not going to be just one year of work. Like this is going to be a okay. while. Like we got a lot of topics and there's more. <laughs> you could take, you could take one topic a year and that also. I'm, that I'm also aiming would. for three a year. Um, wow. but, and now that's recorded too. So <laughs> hold me to it. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm on it. Oh my God. Wow. I mean, I use the words food science frequently, but I I just don't think that I had thought of it in such a way and at such a policy level of scalability, which I feel like that's got to be huge. Absolutely. And I'll be honest, I don't think I thought of it before I worked for food companies. (laughs) Like I'll be honest, right? right? Like I probably use certain terminology and even gave recommendations that right. if I were to like listen to myself before and now yeah. I'd be like, I'd probably cringe a little bit and be like, 
no, like yeah. <laughs> you're oversimplifying it or you're missing the mark. Like it's food science right. is great. And really what gets us that safe food supply. Like we need it. Yeah. That's why we don't have moldy bread. Oh God. <laughs> so we need to get into this. When you hear the phrase processed food, <laughs> you know that that's a touch point for me that makes me cringe. <laughs> it's such a good one. It's such a good one because it's so, the way that you made this point was so brilliant and compelling, but also it made me think that I use this phrase all the time on this Everybody podcast does. all the time. So but, many people and I have do. A picture, I have a picture in my mind of a couple examples of things. And sometimes the picture in my mind isn't even based in reality. It's just like a number of things that I think of that, that sit somewhere. Yes. And okay, well, you tell us your definition and and your feelings. <laughs> and then I'm going to share another thought on this. Let tell me tell you. <laughs> that is probably the term that makes me a little bit nuts. Um right. because the term processed food it's almost always, I don't want to say always, but almost always, especially with a nutrition conversation used with a negative tone and connotation. Right. It's very rarely used positively. But food processing, it's what gets us from raw agricultural products to foods right. that are at dinner tables, right? Right, right? I don't think we need, should get all caught up in that how it's made, but I think the conversation should be what it provides. Oh. So just because it's made in a factory, yes. right, doesn't mean that it's nutritionally different than the same thing I made in my kitchen. Right. So right. if I were to take that a step further, I would say that I, I extra feel frustrated by this word as a mom yes. because there is a pressure and a stress out there and this kind of sentiment that if we love our family oh and ourselves, we would scratch cook and process all our veggies straight from the farmer's market. Or straight from the farm. Or from I the mean, farm honestly. or even from the grocery store. Like that, right. we would just buy fresh ingredients and we would process them in our home process, right? Exactly. We would say cook. We would never right. say process right. in our home we would in those conversations. But say you are, chop. Mm -hmm. but yes. you are processing them <laughs> when you are doing those things. Right. That notion drives me nuts. Yeah. I mean, I love fresh produce. I love the farmer's market. I love to cook. I mean, I have a culinary degree. I really right. love to cook. Right. Right. But my goodness, life happens. Yeah. And it's not always possible. Right. And I think I told you before, like when my kids were young, I think they were like three years and younger. Their favorite dinner was pasta with garbanzo beans, broccoli, and extra virgin olive oil. Now, the pasta was the pre-cooked, microwavable, ready-in-a-minute pasta. Mm -hmm. The beans were canned, and they were rinsed, and wow. the broccoli was frozen. It took me two minutes to dinner. That's Everything amazing. was processed, right? Yeah. Or possibly ultra-processed, depending on your definition. <laughs> Like this is, this is a new one. This is a yeah. new phrase, the ultra processed. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's another one I used, I've started using. I, I mean, honestly, what's wrong with me? I'm upset with myself because it's such a great point, which is that like all of these things are processing. It's almost like a, like a more shorthand way. I think of professionals to, to talk about foods that are less nutritious. I, I mean, yes, it's right? like become the, the shorthand word of what you really mean is don't eat things that are high in added sugar, yeah, extra saturated salt, fat, saturated sodium. fat, like all of that. <laughs> right. But we use right. that word as kind of the catch-all, but it's a misnomer. It's not correct. Right. Right. Like everything that I just told you that I would feed my kids for dinner was processed. Right. And if I had listened to the noise that processed foods were bad, I would have had major mom guilt, but I knew better. A thousand percent. Yeah. And there was no guilt, but let's I do the same. That. 
so that others don't have that. Let's focus on what matters, getting healthy foods, processed or not, that fit our lifestyles, our cultures, our preferences, and our budgets. (laughs) I mean, I feel like clapping. Like you just said that, I feel like clapping. (laughs) My instant, like I don't know what to do with my hands. I feel like they were about to clap. Before, (laughs) this is something, I actually saw this this morning and it really enraged me because I. this is a term that I'm now at the point where people who know me have started to make fun of my pure rage at this term because I I just, every time I hear it, it feels like something goes up in, like (laughs) I pull a disc, like something happens, but it's clean, clean eating. Oh, that makes me nuts too. That's probably up there with process. (laughs) That makes me feel better. I I knew I I would get you with that. Yes. I knew that you too. It's horrible. And I and I thought I thought we had moved past it. I thought maybe actually I feel like there's way in. Because like when I hear processed or unpro right? Like when we hear mm-hmm. that, there is a way of saying, what do you think cooking is? Right? Like there's a there's an opening. Looks like there's an opening for me to have a dialogue with you about this. When you say clean, I feel like you're holding on to a lot of things. Oh clean. <laughs> like there's a clean whole, can mean so a many lot things. of beliefs in there. Right. Yes. It's a lot of beliefs. It's a lot of kind of there's a lot implied there, right. but it's also like nothing clearly implied. Like what nothing, does that it's mean? It's completely right? vague and also rude at the same time. And I don't even yes. know why. I know it's not intended that way. I, I'm, I'm I agree with you though, because myself. it makes you think that like, if it's not right. a quote unquote clean labeled food, is it right. a dirty food? No. Right. <laughs> like, right. No. Oh, I'm with God. you. I can't, that one makes me nuts as well. That would probably be up there in the top five. <laughs> I, I mean, thank you. Thank you. You're so, so spot on with what you just said a, a moment ago about, about what we're really talking about is less nutritious foods. When we say the word processed, we're often talking about less nutritious foods that are high in added sugar, saturated fat, and sodium. That's what we're meaning, but we're not using the right word. Right. That's why it makes me nuts. I know. <laughs> I know. But it, but where, where my brain just like caught those <laughs> two things together is that in a lot of places, when you identify these things specifically, which is really what we have to do in order to change behavior at this level, at the policy business, you know, like at this real level, is there some sort of like, I I feel like there's this cultural shift that's come with the idea of let's move away from strict diets, which I feel like as dietitians, we were already there. We're there. Yeah. No one's saying that, but we still need to be able to identify these nutrients so that we can educate people about that. Right. But I feel like sometimes you'll say this or you'll advocate for this and the pushback will be, we don't want people to count or, you know, don't pay attention to that or, or eat how you feel, which there, it all has components of things I can support and understand. But I also feel like the nutrition education, the food science itself is really so critical because otherwise people are flying blind. I feel like it's a chicken and the egg. Like you have to have some type of understanding, right? right? Like if you know what healthy looks like, right? What healthy habits, what a healthy lifestyle and diet look like, then it's a lot easier for you to not have to count calories, to not have to worry about that because it just becomes kind of inherent in what you know. Like I- for you and me, like we've, we've learned that through our formal education so much that 
I couldn't you tell you the last right. time. The last time I used a cooking skill was right. when I was baking because of the recipe called for it. Like grams Even versus when I'm baking, like, I'm like, ah, I know this won't work, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> I mean, that's like the only time I pull one out. Right. Because it just becomes part of yeah. your habits. And then it's just easy. It just flows from there. But it not everybody has had that education and that scientific understanding and that background, right? Not everybody grew up with with learning what were healthy habits. And I think that's why it, that that's a hard one, right? Like on the one yeah. hand, I totally agree with let's have intuitive eating. Let's not count calories. Let's not be overly prescriptive. Mm. But at the same time, people have to have a basic scientific understanding of what their body needs and what is... A you know, thousand percent. So it's... Yeah. Uh, we have opportunities for that, right? Through the school right. lunch program, through education programs. Like there's a lot of opportunity for that, but it's a... It's not yeah. a one or the other. To me, it's yes. an end. It's an yes. end. <laughs> no, I fully agree with that. And I love how you said that. I fully agree with that. Now, tell us about your thoughts on healthy. <laughs> Let's go back. Let's go back to DC. You get there, you get, and you're handed at the entrance a 135 page dense single space. I wouldn't even say single space. I'd say 0.5 spaced. I think everybody was getting it on their phone while we were waiting in the, in the room. (laughs) Like the security, right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a long rule and there are a lot of kind of nuances to it, depending on the category and different things. So I'm still trying to process some of the details. In general, I'm excited that we finally have a proposed definition, right? Like that has been some time in the works. It is great to just have some guidance out there. When we're thinking about it being used on packaging specifically, so packaging claims, Mm. I am hesitant as to how impactful it might be. Yeah. And I just say that from my own experiences. Like when I worked with market research on various projects before, we would test considering adding the words healthy to a product on the packaging in the front and the back and other communications. And I will tell you, often it was interpreted by consumers as not delicious. Whenever we would say we want to call this healthy. So more often than not, even when a product qualified for the claim, we would say, we're not going to put it on there. That didn't mean that we weren't selling healthy products. Like we absolutely were. And that guidance was helpful for helping us on kind of the back end when we were thinking of, okay, what does our portfolio look like? How much of our portfolio is healthy? So it's it's helpful guidance for that perspective. But when when it comes to the actual claim on a package, yeah, I, I don't know how helpful it will be. It will depend on how many packages want to use it and consumers' perception of it. I hadn't thought of this amazing point that you just made, which is I experienced it too, which is like no one wants to see healthy because it makes you think it like used to have this connotation of being like, that's not going to taste good, right? Like that was uh, entirely understandable, reasonable, all of that. And then you're like, so there's this huge education gap missing, number one, number one thing. And then number two is that now... I mean, talk about like an existential question. It's also like, what, like, would if we used healthy now or a definition of healthy now, if you think about the other words that we're sort of using to imply health in some form or fashion on food labels, 
Do those claims still give the resident or non-claims, non-regulated claims, do those things still give the, this is not going to be that delicious? Or do those give a little bit more of that wiggle room for this is maybe, this is good for me and it's delicious? Like, because those things won't go away necessarily, you know, like that's, that's the big question mark. That is a tough question. And I, <laughs> I feel like, it could, I feel like it could go either way. Like, right. I mean, I almost think about how I present food to people when I'm just cooking my own home, to be honest right. with you. Right. If you put the veggies out in this really kind of over, like, like you put out a crudite with that, with just no dip and it's just crudite. Nobody's like super into it. Cause the they're like, Oh, that's like the, radish. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's like the healthy platter and everybody's right. eating like everything else, but you exactly. put it out in like single serving cups with like a delicious, like freshly made hummus, a drizzle of extra so virgin true. olive oil, like a sprinkle of sea salt. And now everybody's like, this is delicious. And they're grabbing it. So I don't think that like it's it's hard to say, but I think it's how we position it overall, right? Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. making it where the healthy foods are delicious looking, delicious tasting, desirable. Like if that's yeah. through different communications and words, if that's through imagery, if that's through that kind of content and lifestyle marketing. Yeah. Like as long as there are foods that we need to consume more of, I'm, I'm all for that. <laughs> agree. I totally agree. So did you celebrate another birthday while you read this definition in DC. You were like, I've actually gone forward in time an entire year of my life. <laughs> don't know what happened. I don't know what happened, but I, my, my kids are grown. My kids are completely grown up. Like this was your, you were like, I've lost years and you're just sitting over a tablet reading the definition. That's what happened. Right. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> we're like, this is really that long. Yeah. No, it was, <laughs> I mean, to their credit, they put, you can see how much thought went into it. Like it was not totally agree. Like on the one hand, like we can say, wow, it finally came out. But on the other hand, it was not put together overnight. Like that is clear. So I do appreciate the thought and care that went into it, even if I'm still trying to scratch my, I'm scratching my head on a couple things, but like overall, they put a lot of effort into it. And I think that is admirable. Right. Okay. On this. Based on last week's conference and even based on the definition, and you can totally feel free to answer this in whatever way makes the most sense, like whatever whatever comes to mind first. What do you think are some of the biggest myths about food policy and nutrition policy that you would kind of want to get out there in a bigger way? And, and I don't even mean that in the very like, in the sense that we just talked about, about like, and processed and all of that. I mean Mm -hmm. that like, what are some of the almost like preconceived notions that when you're interacting with people day to day, let's say either when you're zooming in on calls or you're in DC working at this policy level or or to shape policy or to influence, to nudge a little bit, what are some of the bigger myths that come up about the profession and food science at large? That's a I tough question, but less, I, than, <laughs> less than myths, I would say that there is like an overarching challenge and not yeah. just to food science. Like yeah. it's an overarching challenge across the food system. I would say that we're working in silos. Mm. And, and that became really clear from talking to people and engaging with people. I mean, we kind of knew that before, but when I was at the White House conference specifically, and we were talking about this, it was really clear that across the food system, we are working in silos. There are brilliant people doing Mm. amazing things, 
but they're doing it in like their segment and not, we don't have a lot of kind of cross sharing and collaboration. And I would say that that is one of the biggest things that we need to do is to break down the silos. Like if we're thinking of policy, there's a lot happening from the White House conference, the the healthy definition, the pending healthy icon, next year's farm bill, a new dietary guideline cycle, like across (laughs) it all. Like I am a big fan of anything that breaks down the silos and gets the various players from across the food system better working together. So when I think of that, I think of, research collaborations, bringing yeah. in food science expertise and the, to the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, Yes, increasing what I would deem agri-food research, so both yeah. agricultural food and nutrition research in the farm bill title for the research title yeah, and more. So one of the things, as I said, like with silos, but I think one of the ways we break that down is if we change the way we research Helping bring change across the food system must start with the research. If we're researching in silos, inevitably the pilots and solutions that are informed by the research, they kind of just continue in that way. Right. So what I would hope comes out of kind of some of the upcoming policy opportunities is that there's more research policies that can increase or research funding that can increase funding to promote research that collaborates across the food system. Yes. I mean, amazing. It's so well said. It's so important, but the silos thing kills me because I feel like it, it's a micro problem and such a macro problem too. It comes up everywhere and yet it affects it everything. It really does. And it's what, it was lovely at the conference to see all of these people from the food system, but in dissimilar places coming together and talking. Mm-hmm. But now we really, I believe we have to change some of the policies and ways that we're working so that we continue those conversations, totally. right? Because it's it's hard to just say, okay, you guys have met, now go back and continue to collaborate. Like right. everybody's working in their, their area. We need to have those collaborations built into how we're researching and how we're funding things so that it, it can continue. Right. Can you share your perspective uh, I mean, this, the silos really gets my, my wheels turning about the item that you shared with me about food as medicine and that definition. So I think there are several definitions around for food as medicine. Yeah. So let me start right. by saying that. I feel like often when I talk to people about this, everybody has a different thought in their mind on what it means. So for me, it means integrating food conversations, knowledge, and intervention into the medical care of individuals. So specifically, making sure physicians have courses in nutrition um, so that when they're going to school, they're learning about nutrition as well. That medical foods for the treatment and prevention of diseases, whether that's a celiac individual or somebody with uh, with another condition, that they could be covered by insurance. And then I think we're talking produce prescriptions a lot of times, having those integrated into care plans. All three of those concepts would help bring improvements to people's lives, and I would be all for it. With a caveat on the produce prescriptions that I would hope that it means produce in all forms. Because as I already said, like fresh frozen canned, it needs to meet people's preferences and needs. We don't always have time to wash, clean, cut, et cetera. But I love food as medicine in that kind of definition and concept. Now, sometimes I feel like people are thinking of food as medicine as in food as medicinal, thinking Mm -hmm. of it as like the bioactives, like take your breakfast, it's your medicine. And that's Have your where, turmeric. I, yeah. And that's where it makes me like pause because yeah. for me, I don't want to look at food as medicinal in that way. 
Like, yes, there's bioactives and that's fantastic and research should happen in those areas and that's great. But I want food to me as culture. Yes. It's enjoyment, it's conviviality, it's yes. it's the nutrients and energy, yes, but it's so much more. Yeah. So for me, the, the thought of it is in thinking of food as medicinal, yeah, it's less appealing. A hundred percent. I also sometimes feel like it's the person using the phrase food as medicine, but sometimes gives, and by person, I mean many people using that phrase as a very blanket statement that maybe is something I'm react is a part of what what I'm reacting to with that. It's almost like, like processed. Right. <laughs> Just eat clean. <laughs> Food is medicine. I, and then you're like, what? Well, I still don't understand. Nothing about that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I think from the points where I think of it, like in those very specific areas, I'm all for that. Yeah. When, but I do think that it's kind of broad in a pretty misunderstood by a lot of individuals. I think there was a survey a couple weeks ago that I saw, I think it was put out by Deloitte, Mm. that food as medicine to consumers meant fresh, I believe. Everyone was like, wait. Yeah. I'll have to find that and send it to you as a follow-up so you can include it. (laughs) Okay. I know I have to let you go. So I have to ask you our last big question. I mean, this is like the gold ticket, the winner, the winner question. Your last meal, if you had to choose, what would it be? I think this is like your hardest question. Um, It's the most (laughs) impossible question to answer. That's why I like to say it can be anything or we can say at this snapshot in time for today, where do you think you feel? So for me, as I had said before, like food is more than just the food. So I'd start by who I share it with. Oh, yeah. Um, So if it's breakfast and where and how I get to eat it, like my ideal breakfast would be overlooking the ocean with my family, a strong dark coffee and arepa con huevo, like the fried one that's handmade and fresh with fresh fruits. That would be my indulgent, delicious last breakfast. If it was lunch or dinner. I just drooled a little. (laughs) You might have, but it's a podcast. No one can see it. Exactly. No one can see Um, it. (laughs) Lunch or dinner, I would add some friends to the mix of family. I would have tacos, preferably one each, carnitas and roasted veggies with a side of guacamole and a painfully hot picante salsa. Painful. And I love that you I, use I that love, word because you're so right. Yes. It's got to yes. be really hot. I love it's it. It's got to be kind of painful. Yeah. And I want yeah. tears. I, it's not yeah. real. It's not hot if there are no tears and maybe some numbness on the face. Exactly. <laughs> And then I need to be washing it down with a mezcal margarita with a tahini rim. And again, finishing with coffee. But that is like my ideal day. <laughs> I, I knew that we were meant to meet, but now I know that we're also meant to eat together. A mezcal margarita with a tahini rim. That's my, I'm, I might have to make one now. I mean, it's early morning still, but I, oh my God. It's the I best answer. <laughs> Where can we go if we're, if we're curious about IFT, if we're curious about you and learning more from you and hearing more from you, where can listeners go to find out more? Go to IFT.org to learn more about the Institute of Food Technologists. Check out their annual our annual show. It's every July. It brings together 15,000 plus food science individuals with education streams that include the role of food and nutrition security and food science, as well as other food science topics. Then the next best thing would be to join October 24th. And on our IFT.org, you can find the link and I can share it with you, Jacqueline, on yes. 
the role of food science within the White House conference. I'll be hosting that panel discussion. So it would be great to have your listeners join that as well. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. That's so exciting. Thank you, Anna. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better, one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.